Just so you know, this episode contains almost no wargaming talk. Just so you know. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. Today I'm joined by Miranda Summers Lowe, curator, door gunner. Miranda, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing this morning? I am doing just fine. Now, we're going to go ahead and start off with the same question I ask all of my guests, and that is, what makes you a veteran wargamer? I feel like a a bit of a fake on that one. Uh, I have always felt like uh, wargaming is for for work. Uh, So in my time in the Army, certainly did a decent amount of wargaming, but on my free time, I don't usually spend a lot of time gaming. Well, I I kind of alluded to it in in the beginning. Uh, You were interviewed recently, and in in the opening paragraph, the the writer had mentioned that the sign on your door at your office says, Curator Door Gunner. So I, I feel we need to touch on that very briefly yeah uh it's true i was a door gunner in iraq uh it's one of those things that actually took up a pretty small amount of my life but i'm not it's a pretty incredible amount um of of influence i guess i only did about 80 missions but Mm -hmm. uh so when i deployed with my army national guard unit in 2006, we got uh, attached to the Marine Corps. Um, it was a Black Hawk unit and um, in Al Anbar province. And we needed door gunners. And, you know, it's kind of a, a combination of volunteering or, you know, feeling like I, I needed to volunteer. And I'm glad I did it. I mm-hmm. was a supply sergeant by profession. And, you know, that's oh. an important job. But I really would have had a, a different perspective on my time deployed if I spent the whole time, you know, in a supply room. Sure, sure. Well, I guess we should go ahead and get started with the with the main part of the interview here. What What is your role at the Smithsonian exactly? I am a modern military curator uh, at the American History Museum. So most of my work focuses on post-1973. So I work on the all-volunteer force, and I'm also taking over the women's military history collection. So those are my two big focus areas. As far as what is like the day-to-day work of a curator, it's kind of split between research, so Mm -hmm. writing papers, presenting at conferences, uh, participating in, you know, kind of the academic community and um, with the actual objects in the collection. So figuring out what isn't in the collection and needs to be uh, acquiring said objects, looking back through what we have in the collection and, you know, looking at what, you know, like, what needs some kind of like extra care. Um, you know, sometimes we do deaccession things. So we'll look through and, and realize that, you know, we have too many of one thing and not enough of another. And so part of good stewardship of those objects is, you know, finding them, you know, a home, a, a good place to be. Often collections come in and 
uh, sets, right? You know, like you may only be looking for like one particular kepi, but to get it, it's coming in from someone's personal collection of, you know, 500 Civil War objects. And, you know, so, you know, it's, it's fascinating that way. And what previous professional historian roles have you held? The biggest is um, I worked at the Army Center of Military History for two years. Um, That is the Army's kind of official center for military history, including, um, you know, all of the Army museums. So anytime you went to or probably, you know, got forced to go to, you know, whatever, the Ordnance Museum or the Quartermaster Museum, um, those are all run out of there. And then there's um, a field histories division. They actually send people um, out into like uh, deployed environments and they collect oral histories and interviews and records and um, potentially objects for the museums out of units that are deployed. So I was actually in the um, histories division and those are the people who write books for the army. So um, everything from kind of like military history textbooks that they use in like some of the schools to um, I think they're most famous for the green book series um, I feel like most people have seen these books. It's, um, uh, boy, I don't even remember how many volumes, probably like 40 or 50 volumes on the history of World War II. And they're all bound in green. green. And right. So I was there on this uh, special team that we had. Um, actually, so it was a special team from the chief of staff at the Army's office to write um, the first kind of um immediate history of the war in Afghanistan. So there were 12 of us and we wrote Afghanistan history all day, every day. What did you write about as far as the history of Afghanistan, or at least the, I guess, our involvement in conflict in Afghanistan? Sure. Yeah. And I mean, that's an important distinction because, you know, you know, we have one chapter that kind of explained everything leading up to 2001. (laughs) So that's, you know, a little unfair. Um, So I came in to do the National Guard and Reserve sections. So I certainly did write a couple of tactical sections, but I ended up mostly working on mobilization history. So, yeah, mobilization and manpower. Um, I think one of the things I found most interesting about that was um, history can have a, a way of making just about anything seem like not unique anymore and Mm -hmm. and so like for me you know like at a personal level you know I I got deployed my senior year of college and like left college and and went to Iraq and that is all like you know very personally uh like dramatic and you know then I got into like writing mobilization history and I could see that like as far as what was happening in the military being a guardsman that got their mobilization orders in 2005 was like absolutely the most typical story out there yeah like that is the largest year of of guard mobilizations since mm-hmm. um yeah i think since world war ii yeah i feel confident yeah. saying that yeah my my unit or the unit i deployed with uh charlie company second battalion 130th infantry they mobilized in 2005 also and ended up being uh actual ground owners in Iraq. I think they were in Baghdad and Taji. Yeah. And 
And I, unit. yeah, I, uh, you said you do or do not? Oh, oh, I think I, I've heard about them because they were the first to get the first guard unit to get battle space in Iraq or yeah, at the battalion and, brigade or brigade level, right? Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't recall. Um, I joined the unit as part of the rear D while they were deployed, and then like four months later, a bunch of, you know, pissed off guys in ACU showed up, and we're still wearing woodland BDUs. And uh, half of them left immediately because they were done. You know, they were all FTA cases at that point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, and then we mobilized for Afghanistan in 2008. So, yeah, I'm, I'm no no stranger to the whole mobilization process either. <laughs> but, sure. Uh, sure. Yeah, so I, w- I can only imagine you have the same hatred of First Army I do. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think they got put in a great situation either. <laughs> um, just, just to just to clue folks in, First Army is the, for lack of a better term, it's the outfit that quote unquote trains guard and reserve units prior to mobilization, and the crew that we had when we were mobilizing had a significant number of members that had not deployed at all which by 2008 was getting on the strange side. <laughs> right. Especially if you're going to be in that role. So there were some, just just as an example, in my platoon, three of the four squad leaders had combat deployments with active duty units. And let's see. Well, one of the other team leaders. So we were a pretty young platoon, but still we had leadership that had, and our platoon sergeant had all, had all deployed. So, you know, getting pointers and tips from people with largely theoretical knowledge was not <laughs> was not very well received to say the least sure absolutely or or like i remember um we deployed my unit deployed out in dcu so like the the desert camouflage patterns but the acus mm-hmm. like our trainers already had them but they weren't giving them they weren't giving the newest uniforms to the guys deploying yet yeah um yeah, I, and I think one of the things I, I didn't really step into like mobilization research thinking that like that was going to be like my big passion, but um, I just presented a paper at a conference about um, 90s mobilizations. And I, I think one of the things that is really interesting is if you go back and read like the um, Congressional Research Service reports and Inspector General reports from Desert Storm, just about everything you could say about early 2000s mobilizations, we knew in 1991. Mm-hmm. And just like a lot of those changes they recommended. So say like one of the first things that came out after Desert Storm is... Um, you know, across the the service is saying like, wow, you know, reservists are on a different pay system and um, that's a problem, right? Like it it makes it a lot harder to get people on, you know, like, like mobilized and fix their pay problems. If we're always having to like call back from theater and ask someone in their state to do it. Well, um, you, you probably saw, we're just now rolling out the system that can do that. And like, I think maybe only like two or three states in the guard are on this trial right now to like try to do the integrated pay system. So, I mean, yeah, there's an example of something we knew in 1991 and it's 2018. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's an old adage. There's three things you don't mess with and that's 
soldiers mail, soldiers food, and soldiers pay, but big army doesn't seem to understand that, I guess. Yeah, I think it's all kind of a matter of where you put your priorities. And, you know, if you would have yeah. said to anyone in 2002, 2003, that these mobilizations would, you know, keep going, then, you know, I think a lot of people would have made different decisions. But it's it's one of those things that, you know, it's like bringing water to a boil. It just sneaks up on you, and then, like, eventually that's the way it is, and then it's amazing how quickly things become the status quo. With this focus on post-73, especially with uh, reserve and guard forces, and then also the women's military history, what type of items have you been finding most interesting? Yeah, um, we're kind of at an interesting place as well when you think about what is the difference between a military museum and a national museum that sits on the mall downtown and has military history objects. Um, So I think part of what I really like about working at Smithsonian is we're also looking for a lot of things about like the total environment. So, you know, the the home front, families, the transition from citizen to soldier and, and back out of it. So, mm-hmm. so say one thing that I really am looking for right now is I feel like one of the iconic images of our generation of soldiers is the homecoming ceremonies and the surprise homecomings right. and all of that. So. Yes, I, I am actively trying to seek out objects related to that. Because it's not a thing people tend to keep, you know? Like, you make a nice poster, mm-hmm. show up to the airport, you know, greet dad or sister, whoever it is, yeah. and then, like, throw it away immediately. Yeah. So I did find a Mylar balloon from 2003 where um, a soldier's wife had... Um, gotten a picture of him like in uniform I guess um screen printed onto this mylar balloon Mm -hmm. like with his face on it so that's something I just brought in so what what other types of items maybe specifically for example the the women's military angle that you're that you're approaching yeah um I am just getting started on that right now. Um, the the woman who has put in an incredible amount of like intellectual and effort and to this collection over the years is retiring. So I'm kind of, I guess, uh, backbenching her right now, uh, transitioning mm-hmm. some of that. So. Um, she has brought in some really interesting stuff recently. So I just got to work with um, some of the objects from Anna Mae Hayes. She was the first uh, female general. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting. And um, we recently had a donation ceremony for Nancy Pelosi. She donated, you know, the suit she was wearing the day that she became the first female speaker of the house. And um, so for that event, we actually you know, got to put some different things on exhibit than what would normally be out in the museum. So um, General Hayes's uniforms, or a uniform, one of the things that we did. And that was really cool. Some of the other um, museums were involved. So it was right next to Sally Ride's astronaut suit. And I like mm. couldn't quite handle how cool that was to see General yeah. Hayes and Sally Ride. And um, trying to remember who else was 
you know, anyway, there, oh, um, we had a bunch of objects, um, on, from, uh, Admiral Grace Hopper out there. It's just cool to, mm-hmm. you know, have that all out on display, even if it's only for a day. Yeah. Um, now shifting from your professional life to more your personal interests, if you don't mind, um, what aspect of history holds the highest personal interest for you? And I guess if we, you know, narrow it down to like maybe a particular era or a particular area. Yeah. Geographically. (laughs) I'm definitely um, an Americanist by far. Um, You know, I, I do like, I like to travel. I like world history, but I wouldn't consider myself any kind of expert on it. Um, at this point in my life, I actually get pretty excited um, about all of my phases and how often I'll change my mind. Like, mm-hmm. right now, I'm really into World War One. The commemoration's coming up. I've worked on sure. a couple of, or, you know, we're in process for the, you know, the centennial and really enjoy it. Um, most of my background, I started out... Um, doing a lot with like world war two and specifically like um the establishment of the women's army corps and the waves and some of these other like early women's auxiliaries um but i think it is kind of a a funny thing and what can be a difference between you know being like a an amateur historian and a professional historian is so often as a professional historian uh what you work on changes so often you know it's Mm -hmm. it's need-based Um, so, you know, I'll be the first to, like, I worked at Harper's Ferry National Park for a while, and at that point, I could tell you so much about Harper's Ferry and the John Brown raid and the Civil War, but, like, your average Civil War reenactor that's spent 15 years studying the same unit by far knows more about, you know, Mm -hmm. the Civil War in Virginia than I do. Sure. Sure. Um... Now, in your either professional or personal research, what do you think the most interesting thing you found is? Thing like object? Like a physical object thing? or fact okay. or idea or, you know, however you want to interpret that question. So I get asked a lot what my favorite object in the military history collection at Smithsonian is. And, and I. Th- mm-hmm. The one I keep going back to is we have a picture frame made out of hardtack. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I just love every part of that. You know, this soldier sitting in camp with this miserable piece of hardtack. Like, I could literally carve this into a picture frame. (laughs) And also, you know, now it's been 150 years and it's still preserved. Like... That is how, like, durable hardtack is. Yeah. And then you also yeah. think of, like, the cost of a tintype at the time, and then you're sticking it inside of, like, the cheapest possible food. Yeah. You're just like, I, and I don't know, you know, was this, like, supposed to be a gift to someone? Um, I just love every step of that process. Yeah, that's that's spectacular. I... I... I wonder if maybe we've lost something as an army because of MWR tents and, you know, internet access in your own little barracks hovel or whatnot that, you know, we've lost some of that folk art 
mm-hmm. uh, approach to, you know, just keeping from going insane. Sure. Like what is you the know? modern scrimshaw? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, I can't immediately think of anything. You know, the closest thing might be, you know, you know, a nine second vine of somebody, you know, smoking a cigar through a pro mask or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Tr- like trying to make Harlem shake videos. Yeah. <laughs> I, I struggle with this and, you know, your, your thoughts and your, your listeners thoughts would be good where of course, like we want to preserve like journals and letters home and, yeah. and try to capture the soldier experience. But because so much of this stuff happens digitally now, I don't mm-hmm. always know how to do that. I mean, there, of course, like we do collect some born digital material, but right. Um, I don't know the example I think about. I, I remember my deployment in 2005. Is, I mean, I got there in 06. Um, when we first showed up, it was still kind of that standing in line to get 15 minutes in a in a trailer to call home. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. By the time I deployed in 2014, um, like a, kind of a consistent problem we had was like with the time delay, um, you know, young soldiers and airmen you know, desperately wanting to like Skype home. And so they'd like stay up all night on Skype and then they're really tired and perhaps unsafe the next day. And I remember just thinking like, these were not, that's a totally different relationship with the home front. Like these were not yeah. problems people were having in the civil war. I'm sure they <laughs> were worried. Yeah. But it's, I, I just think that's a totally different relationship with the home front. And I don't, mm-hmm. You know, where they're, you know, like my soldiers being like actively worried about things going on at home. And I, I think in the past you just didn't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the uh, film Stalag 17. Uh, have you seen that one? No, I haven't. Oh, it's one of my favorite World War II movies. So in Stalag 17, there are American airmen that are in a German POW camp. And they get letters through the uh, through the Red Cross, and one of them is reading <laughs> one of them is reading a letter from his wife, and he's reading out loud and says, "Well, you can't believe you won't believe what happened. I woke up one morning and there was a basket on the <laughs> on the front, and there was a baby in it, and he just said to himself, I believe it, I believe it.' <laughs> oh, <laughs> anyway, Stalag Seventeen, check it out if you haven't already. Yeah. It's, it's, it's spectacular. It's got Peter Graves and uh, William Holden. It's just a really spectacular movie. But uh, sitting here thinking about, you know, the modern scrimshaw, and I think I've discovered what it is. Hmm. And I think you're gonna you're gonna have the same aha moment when I tell you what it is. Portishead or graffiti? Oh, absolutely. Um, and one of my like greater regrets, I remember taking pictures of graffiti like all over Iraq when I was on air crew like we'd stop at these different mm-hmm. fobs and um that hard drive crashed and, uh, uh, <laughs> maybe I should admit that that hard drive crashed because we were super bored in the supply room and spinning each other around on a wheelie chair and I knocked it off my desk like it literally crashed like it like the disc broke mm. because I was being bored and irresponsible and stupid 
That is the most army thing I've ever heard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what you need to do is make sure that none of your colleagues hear this and say, oh, I, I just happened to get this uh, hard drive from an unknown don uh, donor, and they promised me it has all sorts of interesting information on it. So should, maybe we should pay for the uh, data recovery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. I'd get back like my college graduation pictures, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so Miranda, what what did we find? Okay, there's twenty thousand there's twenty thousand pictures in here signed by some guy named Wagner. <laughs> yeah, I got I gotta say, I am a little disappointed in our generation that you know, like World War Two Day at least <laughs> came up with Kilroy, who's kind yeah. of charming compared to like our generation's desire to write yeah. Wagner loves on everything they find. <laughs> I, I know um, the army tried, like, you know, the Hesco barrier murals and paintings. I know the army sent someone out trying to, like, at least take pictures of a bunch of those. Don't know. Yeah, what the Jersey barriers. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, like from a museum standpoint, trying to, like, save and preserve Jersey barriers is kind of a nightmare. Yeah. Just by definition, I mean, it... they're huge and heavy and hard to move. That was the point. And then, you know, they yeah. weren't necessarily made with great materials, right? Like, they're not using, like, right. artist-grade spray paint. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, to their credit, the, the, and this is something I wanted to touch on in a, in a little bit also, the, uh, the Minnesota Military Museum at Camp Ripley, Minnesota, does have a Jersey Barrier that um, some some Minnesota unit had painted. And I, I don't remember if it was their 34th Infantry Division or if it was one of their brigades had it. <laughs> but they've got it at their they've got it at their museum. So credit to them for that. Yeah, but, good on them. That's awesome. You know, I, I guess it wouldn't be any different than bringing back, you know, some Soviet made piece of armored equipment. You know, it's it's heavy and relatively immobile and otherwise useless so yeah yeah i mean the, these things are all in the realm of possibility um yeah and i tend to I, I think a lot of people get this reaction where um you, you see whatever like the the piece of you know soviet equipment on the base you're at in iraq and people are like oh my goodness we have to take this home with us right because it's so yeah. cool but then they don't preserve like their own units history because it just feels immediate and like not important at that moment mm -hmm. so i've definitely seen that happen you get these you know requests to transfer that kind of property and you know so so kudos to this unit for looking around and, and thinking that that was something you know that they wanted to preserve speaking of state military museums have you i'm, I'm i gotta imagine that you've been to more than a few yeah, um, I try to make it. There's some really great state military museums spread around. Um, you know, I haven't been to all of them by any means, and there's, you know, mm -hmm. quite a few I'd like to get to. But Well, I would think there'd be 54 of them, right? Every state and territory and protectorate yeah. would have something, I would think. I mean, you would be surprised how many states do not have one. But, yeah, really? yeah. Yeah, I'd have to, like, actually look up the numbers on that, or they're, like, very small. So, um, yeah. one of the things I helped do is, um, you know, I'm, I'm in the District of Columbia National Guard, and 
we put together the first DC National Guard Museum and that just happened in like, I think we opened it in 2012. So it's like, you know, one gallery uh, in our main armory. But yeah, these military museums really range from, you know, being huge to being one room. (laughs) Right. Um, you know, one guy that has the key to get into the room that you have to track down. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been to some of those, too. And that can be that can be really fun as well. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm going to brag a little bit, but the Illinois State Military Museum at, at Camp Lincoln is it's not the biggest one I've been to. and It's not the best necessarily, but it is pretty interesting. The the artifact of of note there is. They have Santa Ana's wooden leg. That's pretty cool. And uh, the 4th Illinois Militia, when they were mobilized for the Mexican-American War, they they liberated it from Santa Ana's carriage after he abandoned it. So every, every once in a while, there's a history professor from the University of Texas at San Antonio who keeps trying to get it back. I forget if he's trying to get it back for Texas or for Mexico. And uh, the current the current director of the museum is my former regimental mm. commander, and <laughs> and the answer is is always a respectful no. And it was on display until recently. They've they've they're giving it a break and they're letting it uh, they're letting it rest in the vault for a while. Sure. But yeah, I mean, it's actually uh, pretty important to do that. Yeah, and uh, it's. It's worth checking out. It's worth. I'm not going to say it's worth going to Springfield, Illinois for, but if you happen to be in Springfield, Illinois, might as well check yeah, it out. Absolutely. Uh, I think um, Iowa. Oh yeah, no, I, Iowa has. I have not been to the Iowa Museum. They have a great reputation. Um, yeah, Iowa's at Camp Dodge near uh, Des Moines is really fantastic. I had the opportunity to do uh, ten days of training at Camp Dodge and I went to that museum two three times while I was there uh, it, it's it's a really well done it's really large also um, comparatively sure. speaking one uh, of the the things that and of course camp um, kind of separates these out is uh, some states have like a, a state museum system and they put mm-hmm. their National Guard or like their military museum within that museum system so um, if you've got a state that that does that, that's really, you know, it, it's smart. It's beneficial. Like I know Pennsylvania does that. I think Iowa might. I think they they might be either hybrid or you know you know like partially um, National Guard funded and partially state funded. But um, yeah, or like some states will combine. So like they don't hold their own archives. Like they take their archival mm-hmm. information give it to like their state historical society just kind mm-hmm. of it that usually makes things more accessible right so like if your state historical society or your state archives you know is already like supporting the infrastructure to have full-time employees then um right yeah, it just makes it easier to get to that information yeah fun i mean funding's just like anywhere else funding is key in this type of thing so i would I would definitely encourage if you're listening and you have a state military museum near you that accepts donations, please donate. If you're outside the U.S., you know, I know a lot of 
these smaller military museums are run by regimental associations, especially in the UK. And if they take if they take donations, absolutely go ahead and donate what you can because a lot of this a lot of this history is, will be lost otherwise. Even with digitization, I mean, a lot of these smaller museums just don't have the equipment, the expertise, or the or the funding to preserve a lot of the documents and and publications digitally. So help them out yeah. if you can. Worthwhile. I... So I'll, I'll get off my <laughs> soapbox. Well, it, it, I, I'll throw it out there too. Um, National Park Service sites. So if you enjoy visiting battlefields and the museums there, um, the entry fees that you you know may or may not pay, depending on the park, um, those are pooled and towards the infrastructure. But if you make a donation at the park, that stays mm-hmm. at the park. Yeah. Yeah, and there's some there's some great parks out there. Gettysburg is probably the gold standard in the U.S. Yeah, and I mean their uh, new-ish museum there, I think it's probably ten years old now, yeah. but uh, just really well done. Yeah, I was kind of we went there a bunch of I was uh, let's see this would have been ALC Advanced Leader Course Phase Two when uh, a bunch of us from the from the class went just on a free afternoon we had. And I was dismayed to see that to actually get into the museum, you had to pay additional money. And it was it was not cheap either. This was, what, 2013 mm-hmm. or 14 when I went? Yeah. Yeah, I was not real pleased with that. But that's... If if I get out there again, I'll, I'll pony up the... I think part of it was we didn't have a lot of time also. And I knew if, if I was going to go in there, I was going to want to spend a lot of time. And I don't think the... I don't think the guys that were with me were that big into military history like I am, obviously. But uh, no, I, I definitely want to check it out. Chickamauga has a great hmm, interpreter. Have been? If you can get if yeah. you can get down there, and we're looking. Well, I think I think I told you this already. We're looking to do a staff ride for our officer candidates next year to uh, Fort Donaldson. Oh yeah, that'll be good. I'm kind of getting into um, more, I guess you'd say, alternative staff rides. So, like with my uh, unit in the DC Guard, we like we did a mm-hmm. 1932 bonus march staff ride to try to do kind of something that's more like defense support to civil authorities oriented. Which for yeah, for a guard oh, okay. unit, like yes, we have a long history of doing these kinds of operations. We did a. Yeah, that's Civil that's War Defenses of Washington staff ride. There's all of these mm-hmm. little forts um, around DC, um, which is fun too. In that you you can see a huge range of preservation. It, it kind of ranges from uh, national park sites all the way to one we found in the back of a um, CVS or Walgreens parking lot. <laughs> like once you knew what to look for, you could see the earthworks, but. You know, they don't all get mm-hmm. preserved. No, no, and that, that's a that's a shame unto itself. But yeah, it's it, it's a constant battle. You know, preservation of of battle sites is a constant battle, and it's even more acute over in Europe, where I mean, they're having to put forth major effort to preserve sites like Waterloo and mm-hmm. Agincourt. You know, you know, pivotal pivotal events in European history, and. No, let's let's make a let's make a golf. Yeah, and it's always like this interesting trade-off. Like, 
you know, my, my family has property over by Harper's Ferry. And so we started, you know, like, like when you look at it, you're like, yes, obviously like troops moved over this land. Um, you know, we'd had treasure hunters that like to come out with metal detectors and, you know, they would find, you know, mini balls and, um, I think, you know, bottle fragments, that kind of stuff. But you have to like, pick a, a moment, uh, you know, like a physical piece of land and say, this is where we're going to stop calling it a battlefield, which is right. important, right. but also a little bit of a ridiculous concept, because it's like anyone who's served understands that these things spread out hugely across time and space. Right, exactly. And uh, actually, that leads in nicely to a comment I was going to make. Um, I am, I don't want to say I'm building my own collection or museum or anything like that but i did i did get a uh, an interesting artifact from my brother recently he gave me the august of 1944 edition of fm 21-25 which is elementary map and aerial photograph reading <laughs> interesting yeah and to make it even more interesting from for me personally is that it's stamped on the cover uh Eight, uh, what is it? First uh, Battalion, One Twenty Third Infantry Regiment, an Illinois, a former Illinois National Guard outfit. Nice. And how it ended up being in a little, uh, little antique mall in Kansas City, I don't know. But <laughs> it's yours now. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. It's mine now. And not surprisingly, a lot of the same techniques are in the current FM Twenty One Twenty Five. Sure. So pretty fascinating uh, i mean like one thing i end up doing at work quite a bit is um comparing different editions of publications it's mm -hmm. i don't know like i guess if you want to see like what an organization is prioritizing and cares about like looking for changes between editions is you know one source of that information it's interesting to see how things have changed in army publications, I mean, there, there's, I'm sure there's a whole line of research available if someone isn't already doing it, just in how the U.S. Army publishes information, and the the style, for lack of a better term, what's you know what style guide are, guide are they using the the methods of reproduction mm -hmm. that they're using because you know this manual, I mean, it's you know published in 1944, but it has you know it's got full-on photographs not line drawings it's got photographs and that's that's not cheap no, to reproduce and in considering i think that says a lot about the capacity the industrial and economic capacity the u.s had by this point that you know we can afford to make a a map manual a map reading manual with the equivalent of you know the equivalent of a modern full color glossy magazine mm -hmm. basically and then you compare it against fms these days which are just page after page after page of text with no illustrations whatsoever and they're designed to be you know spit out of some office functionary's inkjet printer <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. just just by comparison it's just you know it, I, I not that i'm gonna make you know this particular line of research, my, my life's fascination, but there's something there if someone oh, yeah. wants to take it up. It, well, and there are plenty of people who um, do spend their entire career studying, like, doctor in writing. 
I can think of like two or three people off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I think it, it kind of does say like, what, what, like, what do you perceive your soldiers are doing with that information and how they're getting it? Like, I, I feel like we're very much on a self-service model right now where you just kind of expect that like people will have questions and reach out and get that information. Like it's, more of a pull system and less of a push system less of a like well of course somebody needs to like put this on your you know like every unit would need a map reading fm right like and and now we're much more like well if that question comes up you know where to get it oh absolutely you know the the publication model for the army now you know huge huge dumpsters full of fms I, i remember you know the when i was Back with Charlie Company, just dumpster after dumpster after dumpster, just getting filled with with old FMs. And I tried to, I actually ended up saving one. It was the, uh, you know, as you as you may know, I'm a prior psychological operations specialist, and somehow in the late '70s, this unit got a hold of the the psyop manual, and I snatched it up. And unfortunately, I, I had it in my locker at the unit for a while, and. There was a leak in the roof, and that leak led right into my locker, and it ruined the book. But oh no! Yeah, but it was gorgeously illustrated. There were all these uh, cartoonish line drawings of of Soviet soldiers surrendering, <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, I had to throw it away. And then I compared it against the thirty three dash one that I had in AIT, and it was like, wow, why couldn't we have a book like this in nineteen ninety two? Sure. You know, just. It just, again, it goes to show, you know, the difference between, you know, the late 70s, you know, the late 70s, we were staring across the West German border into East Germany and Czechoslovakia and staring Ivan down and there, there's pictures of old Ivan with his, with his crummy World War One era helmet <laughs> <laughs> surrendering on mass, you know, yeah. but. I mean, whether or not you realize it, you know, this, this army we're in right now is like the most experienced most educated army that the u.s has ever had and probably the world um some of the side effects of the all-volunteer force is it just became much more common to make a career out of being in and the average length of enlistment um even in the world war ii era was like two years vietnam it was like two Mm -hmm. years now we're up to i believe the average is six years and like just mm-hmm. the proportion of people who, who stay in is higher. So in, in many ways, it's like, yes, these old regulations are, are beautiful and they're creative. But I mean, part of that, too, is you're looking at like a drafty army that doesn't stay in very long and, does you know, like doesn't have a lot of education. Right. Well, I mean, there's all sorts of issues with with the army today, but there's issues in every army. So it's. You know, the army, the army keeps rolling along, right? As the song yeah, says. Absolutely. And I, I think like the sense of perspective I get from studying this stuff, like I, I do have these moments where I'm like, well, you know, the all volunteer force is an experiment. Like we still don't totally know how that pans out yet. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty bold thing to yeah. do when you think about it. Like who, who else does that and um, has kept it going for this long? Right. Yeah, because we're, we're what, uh, see, all-volunteer army started, what, 74, 75? Yeah, I mean, like, the legislation came out in 73. So, yeah, I mean, we're we're talking, you know, the army's been all-volunteer as long as I've been alive anyway. 
And actually, there was a story in the Army Times, what was it? It's got to be like three, four years ago now, where the last draftee retired. I forgot where he was, but yeah, he was the last last, last draftee that, that stuck it out. <laughs> so <laughs> 40, 40 plus years of service, you know, God bless him. But Absolutely. Man. Getting back to the Smithsonian in particular and... Uh, your your position in particular do you, do they let you give private tours to to friends and relatives and that sort of thing sure yeah i am allowed to do that okay so what you're saying is <laughs> the next time i'm in dc i can contact you and you can get me next to that me 262 at air and space well see i can give tours of my museum Ugh. yeah you don't know anybody at air and space <laughs> <laughs> i can work on it this has to happen, Miranda. You... <laughs> I understand it's a, a thing you love. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much a World War II buff. If, if I've got an era that I love studying, it's, it's definitely World War II. And I'm, I'm branching out a little bit. I, I was an Eastern Front aficionado for a long time, but I'm starting to look at uh, Operation Dragoon in southern France in, uh, in August of uh, 44. So that's you know, a continuation of the Mediterranean campaigns you know north africa sicily and italy and whatnot but yeah that's that 262 though that's something special and i love what uh, chuck yeager had to say about it he said the first time i ever saw a jet plane i shot it down <laughs> now is there is there a particular favorite part of your current job hmm. would you say i mean there's a lot of really cool things that we get to to work on that we get to do there i, I think my favorite part is probably um, trying trying to collect objects. Like it, it's an interesting mix of the intellectual work of you know getting an idea of what you think the national collection needs, um, and then mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like the relationship based work or like the hunt of actually finding these things. Mm -hmm. So there's not like a, a big cavern underneath the Washington Monument where Nicolas Cage keeps trying to break into where, where all your stuff is kept? Shh, we're not supposed to talk about that. <laughs> we do have uh, um, huge kind of warehouse storage buildings um, out in Maryland, though. I think many people uh -huh. are surprised that like not everything we own is on display all the time, but we're doing really well if like... 4% of the objects right. we have in the collection are on display. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, there's massive storage areas. And you've got, you've got top men working at these places. Top men. <laughs> well, there you go. I, like that, that could be how you get in to see your favorite objects. Uh, just quit your job and uh, move to DC and apply for one of those jobs and get hired. It's pretty simple when you think about it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's so easy an infantryman can do it. <laughs> so <laughs> now I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be reaching here and I hoping I'm hoping you give the answer I'm looking for mm -hmm. on this final on this final question before we wrap things up. What is your favorite historical anecdote? I think probably my favorite is the USS Princeton disaster, which is in 1844, the U.S. built their newest, 
fanciest battleship and they put this experimental cannon on it um which was named the peacemaker which is pretty great and uh (laughs) (laughs) on its like debut cruise you know where they they fill up the boat full of uh dignitaries the president was there um the Secretary of the Navy, the Secretary of State, and uh, they had incorrectly modified um, kind of a, a British mode of casting these cannons. Um, and when, you know, kind of classic military changed it just enough that it didn't work. And as they go to just do a some celebratory fire um, for George Washington's birthday, um, or like as they're near Mount Vernon, um, they take everyone above decks. They leave the ladies below decks, and uh, luckily the president, you know, and uh, the cannon explodes, and it um, decapitates the Secretary of the Navy. I mean, it it also killed um, the Secretary of State. I'm trying to remember. I think six other people, but one of the like quirkiest parts about all of this is um the president was uh newly widowed at the time and uh he had invited kind of a a young lady he was interested in um on this cruise uh to kind of impress her and she took her her father along (laughs) you know as to be properly chaperoned and keep everything on the up and up and uh as this disaster happened and this young lady uh found out that her father had just died she passed out and the president caught her and they very quietly got married in new york city that summer it was quite scandalous Mm. somehow that was the romantic turning point (laughs) (laughs) well good on him So, Can you imagine, like, uh, you know, with today's media and everything? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even at the time, for the president to get remarried and not hold the wedding in the White House, I was like, this is just really shady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that is, that's pretty good. I got to admit, that is pretty good. So um, now, Miranda, for those listening, Miranda did write a piece about this. Was this in the USNI proceedings or was it on task and purpose when it got uh, published? That one was on task and purpose. Okay. So um, I'll, I will have a link uh, in the show notes for Miranda's write-up. I, I, I kind of prompted her in the show notes to be honest with you. And to be frank, I don't know if this is her favorite historical anecdote or if she's just humoring me, but anyway, it's a pretty good anecdote regardless. So look for that it, in the I show mean, notes. It's a great story. <laughs> It is a great story. I, I got to admit, that's <laughs> that's pretty good. And um, I, I appreciate Task and Purpose because they were um, willing to let me write it, um, you know, sort of half like a, a gruesome campfire story. Yeah. Well, that, <laughs> Just, if anything, I mean, my, my listeners are definitely into a, a gruesome campfire story. So that'll work out. That'll work out just fine. Add so, something new to your campfire story. There you go. And it's all good stories have a death in them, but the best stories have dismemberment as well. So, <laughs> 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 so, 
So on, on that note, I'm going to thank you, Miranda, for agreeing to come on the Veteran War Gamer, even though you're not a War Gamer, that's okay. Oh, I was going to ask. I, I didn't put it in the show notes, but I was going to ask, and I can edit this around a little bit. Um, are there any particular articles or artifacts or anything like that that you've come across dealing specifically with gaming in the Army or, or whatnot that, that kind of struck out to you? Or stuck out to you, I should say. Yeah, that's been interesting. Um, there are some great gaming collections. Like, I know the Naval War College has a phenomenal collection. Mm -hmm. um, that is something that the Smithsonian didn't really collect much on. Like, other museums certainly did. Um, and I bring this up to say that, like, one of the major collaborative projects... Um, our museum is working on across divisions. So, you know, like military history and work in industry and culture and the arts is um, an initiative on gaming mm -hmm. and like video games and everything. And so we are in this moment where if you're just following the history, then we, we do need more um, to look more at like war gaming history. Yeah. So if that exhibit comes together or, you know, a book or whatever that team is putting together, we will have to go and, um, acquire or you know take a loan for some of these different objects yeah i, I think in for the modern u.s army i i think any any discussion of and i'm being completely serious here any discussion of uh free time or mwr or recreation whatever you want to call it would be incomplete without at least one copy of risk <laughs> yeah because there is not a there's not a fob or camp or post or barracks building or GP medium without at least one copy of risk in it. I think that's true. I, you know, I feel like everyone has to have a couple of ninja skills. And one of mine is we played Scrabble like crazy in my unit in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Like one of my buddies had one of those travel Scrabble boards where the pieces click into place. Yeah. And we would like keep a game going for weeks if we needed to just pull it out like a couple of turns at a time yeah. Yeah. A lot of scrap. that's great that's great so well miranda i i do appreciate you coming on the show and uh talking to us about history and museums and and all the rest and i definitely want to touch base again if if you get hear some more about this uh military gaming project i definitely want to hear more about that there's a there's a professional wargaming conference held in D.C. every year that eventually I will get to. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I definitely want to check that out sometime. But uh, So, great thanks. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been fun. Great. And on that note, folks, if the wargaming you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer, copyright J. Arnold, 2018. Be sure to leave a positive review on iTunes. If you'd like to join the discussion, head to the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of binsound.com.